And for those of you who are staying, please open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We're back in the book of Jonah this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have Bibles uh, strategically placed underneath the seats in front of you. So you can pick up one of those and open to the book of Jonah. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 3. Well, in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes an illustration of the Christian life. The main character of the story, his name is Christian. And he runs into various trials and events that symbolize and really illustrate the trials and events that we run into in our Christian life. Early in the story, Christian is on the narrow path that leads to life. And he runs into a man named Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Now, Mr. Worldly Wiseman convinces Christian to leave that path and to walk the path of carnality. He promises Christian relief from his burdens and true life if he would visit a man named legality in the village of morality. And the way to this man, legality, his house was at the top of a mountain called Mount Sinai. Now, this all symbolizes a a moralistic approach to Christianity. That is, that if you're a good person, if you do more good things than bad things, you'll one day make it to heaven. In fact, that's what a lot of American, quote-unquote, Christians believe today. If you ask them, why are you going to be entered, why will you be allowed to go to heaven? They'll respond and say, well, I'm a good person. And so a lot of people believe this, that their good works can... Uh, uh, have them inherit eternal life. And this is not the way to heaven. This is not the way to life. It is not by works. Salvation is by faith in the work of Christ. But Christian is convinced by Mr. Worldly Wiseman, and he, he goes down this path of carnality, of moralistic religion. He leaves the narrow path. And as he climbs Sinai, he finds that the burden on his back grows heavier. In fact, he quickly realized that Mr. Worldly Wiseman misled him down the wrong path. This was not the way to life or happiness. If he continued to try and climb this mountain, he would die. Fortunately for him, his old friend, Evangelist, finds him on that path. He calls him out for leaving the narrow path and following the foolish words of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. He says, Christian, you have committed two evils. First, you have forsaken the way of life. Second, you followed the way of death. Turn around and go back. You have to understand that the way of sin is not by mistake. We don't kind of stumble down the sinful path of life, down the way of evil. We can't blame difficult circumstances. We can't blame people. We can't blame ignorance. When we sin, we commit two evils. First, we forsake God in the way of life. Second, we commit to sin in the way of death. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says this, All of us, all we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Sin is a personal attack and affront against God, and it is a commitment to a way of sin and death. And the only way back is to turn around. So that's the title of chapter 3. The title of our message today is repentance. Repentance. Repentance, put simply, is to turn around, to go back to God. The point of departure. Let's do a brief review. Uh, We've taken a little break here for Thanksgiving And uh, so let's recall, let's remember where we've been in the book of Jonah. Chapter one was titled Running, Running. God calls Jonah. He says, go to Nineveh and call out against it. 
The mission is clear. The command is straightforward. It's specific. And what does Jonah do? He runs. He goes in exactly the opposite direction of where God calls him to go. In fact, he goes down to Joppa and then wants to go across to Tarshish. But he doesn't get far in that ship. And why is that? Because God pursues him. God pursues Jonah. He will not let him go. And he'll use any means necessary, a storm, the lots cast by sailors, even a fish, to pick Jonah up and take him back. And we saw through these crazy events and this incredible drama that these mariners, these sailors on the ship, they believed God. They worshipped. They were once idolaters. They were once pantheists. They were once just pagan, and God transforms them and saves them. And they, at the end of the chapter, fear God and worship him. And so we see from the very beginning, the theme of, book, the, theme of the book of Jonah unfold. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's it. Chapter 2, Jonah is inside the belly of the fish, and he is praying. He's praying. And in this chapter, we see a change in Jonah's heart. He goes from running from God to running to him, to his presence in prayer. And he understands in his prayer four things that we can learn. First, that God hears and answers his desperate prayer. Secondly, God was the one who let him down. God took him to a breaking point. And it was God who was sovereign and in control of his suffering. But God didn't leave him there. God brought him up. God saved him despite his disobedience. And ultimately, we saw that God saves. God saves. Jonah's thankful to God for the salvation of his own life. And again, we see the theme of Jonah unfold. Salvation belongs to the Lord. At the end of chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. All right. Now enter into chapter 3. Point number 1 in your outline. Same call, different response. Same call, different response. This is like deja vu. You see the call in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Sound familiar? Similar call to chapter 1. But the response is different. Jonah's response is different. Look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That's much different than chapter 1, verse 3. Look back at chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so we see a different response here, a response of obedience from Jonah. Last time he ran from God and in defiance of his word, This time, he goes to Nineveh in compliance with God's word. There's a simple principle here that I want to point out. Salvation yields obedience. Salvation yields or produces obedience. Now, to be clear, obedience does not yield salvation. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by trying to obey and do all the right things according to God's law. No, 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 no. But if you are truly saved, if you have a true and genuine faith, it will produce fruit. It will yield and produce obedience in your life. Jesus said it a different way in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is a result of true love, true relationship with God. It's very simple. Obedience is evidence of love. Salvation yields, produces obedience. You know, with my kids, there's a principle in our house that discipline follows disobedience. There's consequences for disobedience or for disobeying mom and dad. And there are times where I'll take the opportunity to show mercy, and I'll explain that to my kids, because I want to point to the gospel, the fact that God shows mercy. He withholds punishment toward us, doesn't he? And so I'll take those opportunities to show God's mercy, how he withholds discipline, he withholds punishment from us. 
And we don't deserve it. We deserve the discipline. Yet God withholds it. And of course, the kids love mercy. <laughs> They're like, oh, I love mercy. Joel will jump into my arms and say, Daddy, I love you. And I take that opportunity to remind her, Jojo, if you love me, then you will obey me. It's a principle we see all over the scriptures. If you truly love God, then you will obey him. How can you say that you love God and yet walk in continual disobedience? It's like the lying son who claims to be loyal to his father, yet behind his back siphons money from his business. You claim loyalty to God, and yet behind his back, or you think it is, you siphon his abundant grace, his love, the benefits of God. But you truly don't love the person. Paul says in Romans 6, do we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, may it never be. Don't claim to love God or to be right with God, yet continue to live in habitual sin. Don't claim to love God, yet continue to lie compulsively, to live in unrepentant bitterness and anger, to continue to lust and to engage in actions with another individual that is not your spouse. If you love God, then you'll obey him. Salvation yields obedience. And it yielded obedience in the life of Jonah. We see the same call, and yet this time, a different response. A different response from Jonah. Point number two. Point number two. A great city and a great revival. A great city. And yet, why don't you write this? A greater revival. Great city, greater revival. Look at verse three again. So Jonah arose, he obeyed, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. We see Nineveh, it's called a great city two times in this chapter. It was called a great city by God previously in chapter one. And it's called a great city again by God in chapter four. So what does this mean? What does this mean? And in what sense is Nineveh a great city? Well, Nineveh was truly a great city in size. I have uh, a picture here of, uh, I believe, the, the layout of Nineveh. Maybe the next slide. There it is. It was a great city in breadth, about three miles, maybe a little bit more um, depth, maybe a mile and a half, two miles. So it was a large, large city. So it was definitely large demographically, or geographically, I'm sorry, and certainly Nineveh was great in its majesty and riches. I have other pictures here. You can see uh, renderings of Nineveh, a great city surrounded by a moat that had been diverted from the Tigris River. Beautiful city with incredible architecture. I have another picture here of the inside of the palace, those reliefs that I spoke about in chapter one. Beautifully decorated walls, riches, opulence, abundance, Nineveh was truly great in riches. Nineveh certainly was great in power. Capital of the Assyrian Empire, the center of its military and its economy. But what does God mean when he calls the city great? What does God mean? You know, you can also translate it, or you can translate, I'm sorry. Verse 3 now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. What you don't see in the English is there in the Hebrew. It says, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city to God. God considers Nineveh great. Why? Well, certainly, it's not because of its size. God is the ruler of the whole world. <laughs> Nineveh is but a speck. Even though it's a big city, it's a speck on the earth. God's certainly not impressed by Nineveh's riches. Heaven's riches are far greater. God has far more in his storehouses than Nineveh could ever imagine having in earthly storehouses. God is certainly not impressed with Nineveh's power. 
God is omnipotent. That is, he is all-powerful. So when God calls Nineveh great, he sees a value in Nineveh. And what is that value? We see it in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Why does God call Nineveh great? He says in verse 11, Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons? The value for God in Nineveh are the persons, the people. There's an opportunity in Nineveh, a great opportunity to save sinners. And that's what God sees in Nineveh. Take away the gold, take away the military. God looks down and sees sinners that need saving. He sees persons who don't know their right hand from their left. Their morality, they've gotten so bad. They're so desperate. God sees value in saving them. So what does he do, Nineveh, to this great city? He sends his prophet Jonah to preach the word. Verse 4, so Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is that it? That's the message? 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown? Certainly not a feel-good message. Is this all Jonah said? Well, we don't know that. But what we do know is that this is the thrust of the message. This is the theme. It was not a feel-good message. It was a message of judgment. God, God didn't send Jonah to go into Nineveh and say, hey, God has a wonderful plan for your life. He loves you. He sent Jonah into Nineveh to call out against it. A message of judgment. If you don't turn around, you are doomed. You know, I was, had the opportunity to preach at Hume Lake last summer. And the thesis of my first message was, was this. God is holy. He's righteous. We are not. And that is a big problem. That was my thesis. I wanted to show the students from the very start that God is holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. He is above us and far beyond us. And if that's the case, then we are desperate sinners. We fall way short. Of the glory of God. We are far, far away from God in our sinfulness. And that's a big problem. Because sin earns death. And after death comes judgment. If, if we don't have a savior, then we are in desperate need. And there's a desperate path, a horrible end that we're going down. That's why I wanted to show the students from the first message. To develop a need for a savior. I had a youth pastor come up to me at the end of the message. He said, oh, pastor, that was a great message. But, you know, don't you think you should have started with the love of God? Don't you, couldn't you have started with a kind of a nicer message, ease them into this whole Christianity thing? And I said, in a very kind way, I said, yeah, this is love. This is love. I, I love your students enough to show them their great need for a savior. God is holy. They're sinners and sin earns death. That's a big problem. And when they see that, then they'll see their desperate need for a savior. They need salvation. They don't need to turn their life around, live a better life. They need to be saved. They need to see their need and turn to Christ. You know, Nineveh did not need to be told that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. They needed to be told that if they don't turn around, they're doomed. And sinner, if you're listening and, and wondering if you're saved, maybe knowing in your heart that you're not saved, that you don't have a relationship with God. Those of you who are still running down the path of sin, be warned. If you don't turn around, you're doomed. God is holy. We are not. We've all sinned. And that's a big problem without a Savior. How does Nineveh respond to this news? Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Here is the greatest miracle in Jonah. 
The great miracle in Jonah is not a man surviving three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. The miracle in Jonah is a city that believes in God. The miracle in Jonah is that God made a dead, cold-hearted city alive and gave them faith to believe in him. A relationship. This is remarkable. From the greatest of them, and we'll see from the king to the least of them, to the, to the beggar on the street, to the worst sinner, to the prostitute, to the swindlers, even maybe to the children. They believed in God. This is extraordinary. What would Nineveh's natural response be? We remember Nineveh. What were they? They were ruthless. You're telling me a guy comes into their city and calls out against them, preaches a message of judgment? What would they do naturally? They'd burn that guy at the stake. They're killing him. You don't call out against our city. Don't you know who we are? We are the Assyrians. That's their, that would be their natural response. But their response is supernatural. They believe God. Here we see the means by which we're saved. What is it? Faith. They believed. They believed God. They put their faith and their whole lives in God's hands, trusting and believing that there is a God, but not only that there is a God, but He is the only way they could be saved. There's no way they could turn their life around. There's no way that they could be better people. They believe God, and then they sit in dust and ashes, awaiting God's response. What's God going to do with us? But they trusted in Him. They believed. This is an incredible miracle that God would open their eyes to believe in him. Did you notice that Jonah preaches the message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But who does Nineveh believe? God. It's as if God himself were walking through that city and calling out against Nineveh. God uses his servant to preach his word, and it transforms the hearts of the people in Nineveh. It's the power of God to make dead men alive. Nineveh believes God. Now, this is just outstanding. It's incredible. It's incredible to even think about. Arguably, the worst prophet in history opens his mouth. He preaches God's message and it ignites the greatest revival in history a great city an even greater revival this is god's power to save to transform lives you could be sitting here today going you don't know what i've done i have sinned horribly against god look at nineveh look at what do they do they believe in god and we'll see that they repent from their sins and they're saved. So point number three. Nineveh repents. God relents. Nineveh repents. God relents. We look at this section. Verses six to ten. And we see what real repentance looks like. Repentance or repent is maybe a Christian buzzword. That's thrown around a lot. But maybe you don't understand what that means. What does it mean to repent, repent. Well, I have three points that kind of outline Nineveh's response and what re real repentance is. Number one, hearing. And by hearing, I mean hearing the word of God. That's the stimulus of repentance. Nineveh repented because they heard God's word and it exposed their hearts and their lives. The word of God did what it does, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, pierced the soul, exposed Nineveh's thoughts, their hearts. They were laid bare before God. The hound of heaven sniffed them out. The hunter of heaven, his word, found his bounty. There's no escaping the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, the spirit of God igniting the word of God in the hearts of of his people. The word of God is like a mirror. 
It shows us who we really are. James alludes to this. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and then goes away unchanged. The word of God shows us who we really are. It reveals our blemishes, our sin. The word of God is like a sword, Hebrews 4 said. It pierces our hearts. It's able to break down the strongest walls of pride, of sin, of arrogance. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper than the surgeon's scalpel. It penetrates our hearts. And finally, the word of God is like an eye, an all-seeing eye that exposes the darkness in our hearts. What you haven't told anybody, what that deep, dark secret that you're hiding in your heart, the word of God knows it and exposes it. No creature is hidden from his sight, verse 13. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. Nineveh could not run from the word of God. It gripped them and would not let them go. Like a skilled bounty hunter, it found them out. I want to warn you. This book, it's in your lap or on your iPhone, is dangerous. It has the power to change your life. It will break you. It'll embarrass you. It'll expose you. It'll bring to light your deepest and darkest secrets. It'll tell you who you really are, and that's scary. But let me also tell you, in it is the gospel, and it will wash you white as snow. It will give breath to your lungs. It will feed you. It will nourish you. It will be like honey on your lips. Water to your parched soul. It will light your path. It will give you hope. It will hold you in the deepest and the darkest valleys of your life. Cling to that book and the gospel within it. With your life. Hang on every word that it says. Repentance starts by hearing God's word and responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit who works in it. If you want to avoid repentance, if you don't want to repent, if you want your sin, that evil way, that path that leads to death and judgment, then get away from this book. Don't read it. Ignore it. Be apathetic towards it. But if you want to repent, if you want to turn around and find life, find God, have a relationship with him and walk the way of God, then you need this book. You need this book. Your life depends on it. God works through his word in the hearts and the lives of his people. The stimulus of repentance is hearing the word. Hearing the word. Secondly, when Nineveh saw their sin, they grieved. Grieving is the emotion of repentance. Grieving is the emotion of repentance. Did you see that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth? Those are outer signs of just a grieving heart. Something you would do when someone you love dies. This is like wearing black at the funeral. It's a, an action of grieving. The word reached the king in verse 7. He covered himself in sackcloth. He sat in ashes. And then he issued a proclamation. Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Fast, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. They mourned. They mourned. And they mourned over what? They mourned over their sinful condition and its consequences. These are the signs of grieving. Mourning. You know, the Bible commends certain kinds of grieving and mourning commends it. Matthew 5, 4, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. James 4 says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, there's a time to be jolly, to be joyful in the Lord. I'll tell you, the time to be jolly and joyful in the Lord is not when you are in disobedience or in sin. 
you're in disobedience or sin, the proper emotional response is grief, mourning, sadness. There ought to be a visceral sorrow over our sin. We grieve because we know that our sin grieves God. That's why we grieve. Not because we got caught. Not because we're looking forward at the consequences going, oh man, now life's going to be hard. No, we grieve because we have offended God. We have the first evil we commit. We forsook him. We forsook him. Now there's a difference between genuine godly grief and then the worldly false grief. 2 Corinthians 7 talks about the difference. There's a worldly grief that just only leads to death. But there's godly sorrow that leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, which there's the necessary third part of repentance. What does real repentance look like? Well, they hear the word of God. There's the stimulus. Then they grieve. That's the emotion of repentance. But real repentance doesn't happen until thirdly, the action of repentance is turning. Turning. Repentance doesn't end with grief. It's not enough to just feel sorry, but to turn. Turn. Look at what verse 8 says. Look at what the king proclaimed. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn. Turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. This word for turn in the Hebrew is uh, shub, shub. And I love uh, how one of the lexicons defined shub. What does shub mean to turn? Well, this is what it means. A motion back toward the point of departure. A motion back to the point of departure. You can think about like a sailboat leaving the docks. Maybe hitting some rough winds and turning right back around. They shoved. They turned around back to what? The port that they left from. This is repentance. A 180 turn back. And remember evangelist's words. You've committed two evils. You've forsaken the way of life. And you've committed to the way that leads to death. Sin is forsaking first who? God. And the way of life. And committing sin or evil in the way of death. So sin was, for, and Jonah illustrated this, turning from God to sin. Or from God to an idol. From God to the path of disobedience. So what is repentance? To turn back. To the, go back to the point of departure. To go back to whom? God. Who did Nineveh's king call them, or ask them to call out to? God. Go back to God. Turn around. Go back to the person whom you've offended. Go back to the person you left. Repentance is turning around, going back to God from sin. Paul commends the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. That's repentance. Turning from idols to God. Let me tell you what repentance is not. Repentance is not simply stopping a bad habit. Repentance is not turning from one bad habit to another bad habit. Or turning from one bad habit to a quote-unquote good habit. I had a guy tell me, he was telling me, oh man, I really turned my life around. I went from snorting cocaine every day to now going to the gym every day. No. You turn from one habit to another. You didn't turn your life around. You turn from a bad habit to a healthier habit. Turning your life around is turning from the sin to God. If you haven't gone to God, if you haven't turned to Him, then you have not repented. You simply replaced one addiction with another. One idol with another idol. But to repent is to turn from the idol to God, to go to him. You have to go back to the point of departure. 
In your sin, you forsook God in the way of life. So to repent is to go back to him. Remember what David did in Psalm 51? David had committed great evil. He had committed adultery with a woman who was not his wife. And then he coordinated the murder of that man, Uriah. And so he's responsible for two great evils, adultery and murder. There's a lot of just personal consequences of that, interpersonal relational consequences of those decisions. But who did, who did uh, David go to? Who did he go to first? Who did he, who, what did he acknowledge was the preeminent sin? Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David recognized the point of departure was first turning from God. And so he needed to go back first to God and admit his sin. That's repentance. Go to God, acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your guilt, ask forgiveness, and commit by the Spirit's help to walk in obedience, which is the fruit of genuine repentance, to follow the will of God. There are a couple of scriptures that help us to understand what, what are the fruits of real repentance. How do I know that I've really repented? I'd like you to write these down in the notes. Here are some evidences of true repentance. And you find these evidences in 1 John 1, 2 Corinthians 7, Matthew chapter 5, James 5. Here are evidences of true repentance. Number one, sorrow over sin. Are you truly grieved, mourning your own sin? And not grieving because of the consequences are not grieving because you got caught, but you're grieving because God grieves over your sin. Are you truly sorrow, sorry over your sin? Second evidence is hatred of sin. Hatred over sin. Do you hate the sin that you've committed? Do you hate the sin that crucified Christ, that he died for? Do you truly hate it? Abhor it. Want nothing to do with it. So you have number one, sorrow over sin. You have hatred over sin. Number three, you confess the sin to others. Confess sin to others. James chapter 5 talks about this. Confessing your sins to one another. You know, the Roman Catholic Church has uh, abused that to kind of make it a, a way for you to earn salvation, right? You confess to the priest and that's your means by which you do good works to make yourself saved. No, no, no. Confession is a practice of the Christian faith. It's one of the uh, commands of obedience that we follow since we've been saved, but not to save us. But confessing sin to others is not a bad thing. Confessing your sins to maybe another godly friend that can help you keep, keep you accountable in that sin is helpful and good. So there's sorrow over sin. There's hatred over sin. You confess your sin to others. And then fourthly, you accept all the consequences. You accept the consequences. You don't run from them. 2 Corinthians 7 talks about that. Accepting the consequences. If you've ruined and offended a relationship, then you've got to accept the consequences that that relationship's been broken. It'll take time to restore trust. It'll take time. And so you accept the consequences of your sin. You don't run from the consequences of your actions. Fifthly, you have a desire to right all wrongs. There's a vindication that's a result of true repentance. You want to right all wrongs. You go back to the people that you've offended. After you've gone to God, you ask for forgiveness. You have, try to reconcile the relationship. Restore the funds that you've stolen. Think about Zacchaeus. What did he do? The tax collector? He had all those funds, and he, he says, I'm going to pay back Again, more so even than I've taken. I'm going to go back to those people that I've stolen from and give them more. That's the heart of a truly repentant person. They want to right all their wrongs. Sorrow over sin, hatred of sin, confessing sin to others, accepting all the consequences, a desire to right all wrongs. And next, as they're zealous for good works. They're zealous for good works. 
There's not just a desire to put off sin, to stop doing the bad things, but there's a desire to do the good things. To live a righteous life, to do what God commands you to do, to put off and put on. To be zealous to read the word, to be zealous in prayer, to be zealous to serve in the church, to be zealous to be involved in community. That's fruit of a genuinely repentant heart, a zeal for good works. And then lastly, another evidence or fruit of true repentance is radical removal of temptation. If you're truly repentant, you'll be, have a desire to radically remove the temptation that brought you to that place of sin. Matthew 5 talks about cutting out, or cutting out your eye if it caused you to stumble, your right arm if it caused you to stumble. Better for you to go to heaven without those body items or those body parts than to go to hell with them. Remove temptation. So here are some fruits, some evidence of true repentance. There's a sorrow over sin. There's hatred over sin. There's a confess, uh, a confession to others, confessing sin to others, accepting all the consequences, righting all wrongs, zealous for good works, radical removal of temptation. Nineveh repents. They truly repent. They turn from their evil way to God. And what does God do? God relents. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, the question you might ask is, did God change his mind? Did God respond, or was he waiting for Nineveh's decision to himself respond doesn't that kind of mean that God's actions are dependent upon human decisions? Did God change his mind? Did God change? Maybe that's a theological question that you're asking in response to this verse. It certainly seems from their perspective, living within time and space, they're looking up and it appears as though God changed. But we know by looking at other scriptures that God does not change like men change. God doesn't change his mind like we change our mind. In fact, Numbers 23 tells us exactly that. Numbers 23, 19 says God is not a man, that he should lie. Or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So from the human perspective, it from Nineveh's perspective, they're looking up and God relents. It seems as though God has changed his mind. But we know from heaven's perspective, this was God's plan all along. God moved to save Nineveh. And he granted them repentance. He granted them the faith to believe. That's difficult for to us to wrap our minds around. But we know what we know about God. And God's not like us. God doesn't respond to human actions and go, based on conditions, because you love me, then I'll love you. God had set in his heart to save Nineveh. He had chosen them before time, according to Ephesians 1. And he moved to save them. And in time, and from man's perspective, it seems as though he's changed, but we know that he's not. And sometimes that skews our view of God. Sometimes we think God... You know, God relenting is like him disarming a time bomb just in time. Like God was sitting there with a gavel ready to throw it down to punish these guilty sinners. But, you know, they repented, so he just withholds right at the last second. We almost picture God as like one who's giddy to punish, excited to bring consequences upon sinners. He's like the overbearing police officer or that cruel judge that just likes to see people go away. That's not God. That's not God's attitude toward us. That's not his inclination toward us. What do the scriptures say? Ezekiel 18, 32 says, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So he says, so turn and live. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord 
that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. See, the inclination of God is to save. To save sinners. God doesn't just relent, withhold punishment toward Nineveh. But we know that the heavens rejoiced at the repentance of Nineveh. We see the heavenly perspective in Luke chapter 15. God's heavenly perspective, God, the heavens attitude towards the sinner who repents. And what do the heavens do when one sinner repents? They rejoice. And again, it said in chapter 15, the heavens rejoice when one sinner repents. In fact, the greatest illustration of this is a story of the prodigal son that Jesus gives in Luke 15. And in fact, you find great parallels between Jonah and the prodigal son. Great parallels in the story. Let me just remind you of some of the events in this story of the prodigal son. We see in the story that the prodigal son, he turns against his father, wishing him dead, and takes his inheritance from him. Prodigal son then goes and spends, he squanders the money on loose living. Probably prostitutes, gambling, worldly investments, and all his money is gone. And at the end of his rope, he's in a pigsty eating or looking at pig food, desiring to eat it. And then he remembers what? Oh, my father. My father's a gracious man. He's a kind man. I could go back to his house, become his servant and live better as a slave of my father than as a slave to this pagan man, the world. So what does the prodigal son do? He turns around and he goes back to his father. Goes back to the point of departure. And when he goes back to his father, as those Jewish people are listening to the story, they would expect the father to discipline his son. His son basically wished him dead, took his money and squandered it, spent it all. That son deserves discipline. He deserves punishment. He should be flogged for that crime. He should be put to shame in front of everybody in the streets. But that's not what the father does. What does the father do when his son repents? He runs after him. He takes the shame from the looking ongoers in the city who are looking at him going, what is that father doing? He's running. He's shaming himself for that son who's put him to shame. But the father doesn't care. The father reaches the son. He doesn't slap him. He embraces him. He gives him a great hug. He puts his robe on him. He kisses him and puts a ring on him. He kills the fattened calf for him and he throws a house party. The father rejoices at the repentance of his son. He says in verse 24, This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the house began to celebrate. There is a picture of heaven. When one sinner repents. How about 120,000? This is God. This is our Father. This is the God that maybe some of you are running from. A God not first inclined to punish. Not first inclined to pour out his wrath. But we see the Lord reveal himself in Exodus 34. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. God does punish sin. God does punish sinners. Yet he provides a way for us to be saved through his son, Jesus Christ. Provides a way for our sons to be our sins to be forgiven through the salvation that Jesus Christ provided. Jesus Christ came and he lived that perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He died on the cross as a perfect atoning sacrifice for sins. So that means that if you believe in Christ, if you trust in him, then your sins were paid for. Oh, someone paid for your sins. Someone got those consequences, but it wasn't you. It was Jesus on the cross. He took on that full punishment, and he took it on in full. He died for our sins, and he rose again from the dead. 
according to the scriptures, to give us life. Lord of lords, King of kings, displaying in an incredible sight the merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God that we worship. This is God. And this is what he does for Nineveh. He shows Nineveh his compassion. Would you turn to this God if you haven't already? This God who overflows love, mercy, and grace towards sinners like you and me. But be warned. If you don't turn to this God, if you turn away from him and continue down the path of sin, he is a God that will by no means clear the guilty. He will punish sin if there is no Savior. And so turn to him today. And for those of us who have turned to God and have true faith in him, this is an amazing account, kind of a reflection of our own testimony, isn't it? We're wicked sinners just like Nineveh. We've been saved by a compassionate, merciful, and gracious God. We were saved by just believing him, trusting him, surrendering to him. There's every reason to be thankful for the salvation that God provides. So Nineveh repents, God relents, the heavens roar in celebration. And that would be a good ending to the story, wouldn't it? The story of Jonah should, we think, end in chapter 3. Nineveh saved, mission accomplished. But just like the story of the prodigal son, there's an older brother. And although the house cheered and roared at the celebration of the return of the prodigal son, there's an older brother who hates him. And we see Jonah, we see some ugly older brother in him. He looks at the repentance and the salvation of Nineveh, and he gets angry. And so God has another lesson to teach Jonah about his compassion. And we'll look at that in chapter 4 next week. Let me close in prayer. Father, you are merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, pardoning the guilty, forgiving our iniquities, a God that is inclined to save guilty sinners like me. Thank you, God, for incredible displays of your saving grace, for the display we see in the story of Jonah and the salvation of Nineveh. And for my own personal testimony, the display I've seen in my own life, you forgiving me. God, I pray that for anybody in this room who does not have a relationship with you, I pray that you would open their eyes by your word, that they would see you, God, and believe. That they would believe in you, turn from their sin, turn from their evil way, way and trust themselves to you. I pray that you would even save some today you work through your word and the continued ministry of Jonah to transform lives, even in this building. God, I pray that you would fuel us with a desire to evangelize, just to be faithful, to preach your word and, and watch you perform the results, watch you change lives and hearts. We're thankful that it's not up, up to the eloquence of the messenger, his skill or the articulation, Lord, but if we're just faithful to preach your word, you work through that. We know the word of God does not return void. Pray that you'd use us in evangelism. You'd encourage us to share the gospel with our friends, our neighbors, our family. In Jesus' name, amen.